Let's stay standing together as we come now to the Bible. You'll find Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. We're looking this morning at Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 8. If you find a church Bible, it's on page 844. This is the last in our Explore God series. And um, we are looking at the question, can I know God personally? Can I know God personally? What's going on in the story so far is that Jesus has been becoming more and more popular, but at the same time, opposition to Jesus is also increasing. And it's come to this moment whereby they don't understand what's going on. So right before the passage, Jesus says, uh, um, do you not yet understand? They don't understand how they can know God personally. That's the question. How can I know God personally? They don't understand what's going on, how this popularity and yet opposition is going to a certain place, which will be the answer to the question, how you can know God personally. And so let's pick up the story together. And uh, as we read it through, you'll see there are all these subtitles, but in a way I'd like you to ignore them. They're not obviously in the original text. They're there as helps, as aids, often very helpful. But this morning, this section we're reading really all hangs together, as I think you'll see, from verse 22 to chapter 9, verse 1. So, Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him, that is Jesus, to touch him, that is the blind man. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What can a man give in return for his life? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, 
there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's Word. So the question we have before us then this morning is, can I know God personally? Can I know God personally? Can I have a personal relationship with God? That's the question we're looking at this morning. It's a very important question because it's easy to think perhaps that the the answer to that is an obvious one, and yet it is not at all. Let me open it up for you a bit like this. One American president called Teddy Roosevelt had a particular habit at the end of a long day's work. He and his colleague had been involved in very important things, affairs of state, huge issues facing the country. They were important men. And of course, it would be easy for such people at the end of a long day to begin to feel that they were rather important, to begin to be quite proud and lacking humility or modesty or sense of identity as to who they really were. They could become a little puffed up in their own abilities. And so Teddy Roosevelt, is said, had this habit at the end of a long day. He'd take his colleague outside and they look up at the night sky. And Teddy Roosevelt would point out one small corner of that night sky and he'd say to his friend, that is a spiral galaxy called Andromeda. It's about the same size. That tiny little space in the sky there is about the same size as our entire galaxy, our entire Milky Way. Right there, that little spiral galaxy Andromeda, about the same size as this entire galaxy. That little spot over there. In that spiral galaxy Andromeda, there are hundreds of billions of suns, each of them larger than our own sun. And that galaxy is just one among hundreds of billions of galaxies. And after he said this, he'd look at his friend and say the following. Now we feel small enough. Let's get back to work. So when we say, can I know God personally, we must have in our minds what we're talking about. We're talking about knowing God. And one way to do that is a sense of the sheer scale of the universe that, of course, he made. Can I know God personally? For many modern people today, that whole idea seems frankly absurd. They're aware of the complexities of the universe, both at the macro level and the micro level. And to say that the creator, the orderer, the the architect of all that is can be known personally seems ridiculous. And yet, according to the Bible, it is even more astonishing. For the Bible puts the emphasis on this gap between God and us, not so much on the immensity of the universe, though it is certainly there. What is, what is man that you are mindful of him? One of the Psalms says. It is certainly there on the immensity of the universe. But the Bible puts the gap most of all somewhere else. And that is, of course, on the holiness of God. 
Now, the trouble with that idea of holiness is that you and I have, in our culture today, almost no conception of what holiness really is. When we think of holiness, we think of something petty, small-minded, picky, not taking into account important things and just picking out small things, legalistic, narrow-minded, pharisaic. That's in our mind when we think of holiness, but that is not at all the biblical idea of holiness. Well, let me try and then again expand to you this idea of how can I know God personally by helping you see what it is that is this gap between the holiness of God and our lack of holiness. The holiness, what is holiness? Well, there was another American president, Abraham Lincoln. I saw a movie about him by um, Steven Spielberg was the director, came out in 2012. I watched it again the other day. And in that movie, you get a sense, the increasing sense, of the iconic nature of this astonishing man, Abraham Lincoln. Hugely influential, of course, to Illinois, America, and right around the world. And at the end of that movie, there's that famous moment where Abraham Lincoln is dying, and after he's, uh, he's got these, these, um, uh, all these important people around him, and after he's dead, they say the famous line, Now he belongs to the ages. Perhaps you've been to the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., and you stood before that huge statue of the man. Or maybe you know the Gettysburg Address, where famously he said, we cannot consecrate, we cannot dedicate, we cannot hallow this ground. There's a sense there, hallow, holy, holy. There's a sense of the holiness, the astonishing otherness. That's, the, that's right at the root of the biblical idea. The otherness, the specialness, the differentness. But how much more is that true of God? How much more? And can I know God personally? And the Bible says yes, but only by the cross. And that's what this story here is all about. And I read it out for you, the whole thing, so you get a sense of how it fits together. It fits together around this metaphor of seeing. Do you not yet understand? And there's this metaphor of what it means to spiritually see, to actually know God personally to understand that and see that that's the metaphor that runs all the way through the story first of all you have half seeing semi seeing not really seeing half seeing and then you have the cross and then right at the end fully seeing completely seeing getting what it means to have a personal relationship with God, half-seeing, the cross, fully seeing. That's the structure of the sermon this morning. Half-seeing, the cross, fully seeing. And half-seeing, that part of the sermon, really runs, if you're following in your Bibles, from about verse 22 through about verse 30 or so. Half-seeing. And of course, there in the story, what you see is there's a blind man. And the blind man has uh, been healed, but he hasn't really quite completely been healed. It's the most amazing thing. Did Jesus misfire? 
Did he not do it right first time? Well, Ma puts this here as a metaphor, as a picture for what it means to only half see. So the blind man says, well, I can see a little bit now, Jesus, but it's just men like trees walking. In other words, I don't really see. He's gone to the optician. They put the the lenses in front of him, and he doesn't really see. It's just all blurry. He doesn't really see. The A is now, maybe it's a B or C or D. He can't see it. It's just like trees. Men are like trees walking. He doesn't, he can't see. He only half sees. It's half seeing. And that physical half-seeing then becomes a picture of what happened. So we go in the story on then to Peter. And Peter is asked, you know, what, what, who do people say I am, Jesus says. And then the disciples give these various different answers or what the popular answers of the day of who Jesus is. And Peter says, no, when he says, but who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. Wonderful thing. But, but... Then when Jesus says to them, well, I must go to the cross, I must, be, I must be betrayed and die and then rise again, all this cross event, the Christ event, the death and resurrection, the cross, that must happen, Peter completely does not get it. He only half sees. He sees that Jesus is the Christ, but he does not see that the Christ must be crucified. He only half Sees. Jesus, you cannot be crucified. Jesus, you have come to throw out the Romans and set up the Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem. You have come to put all wrongs right. You cannot fail like that. You cannot be crucified. Peter does not get it. He only half sees. And what I want to say to you is that is true of many, many people today. Surely it is enough to say that Jesus is the King. He is the Christ. For Christ and His kingdom, is that not enough? Is that it? Many people only half see. They don't understand what it really means for Christ to have a kingdom and how the kingdom comes into being. They don't get it. For instance, some will say, I grew up as a Christian. Well, I know what you mean. I could say the same about myself, I suppose, to some extent. But truly, truly, no one grows up as a Christian. You must be born again. You cannot grow up as a Christian. You can grow up in a Christian home. You can have Christian education. You can have Christian influence. You can have Christian parents. But you cannot grow up as a Christian. You must be born again. Half-seeing. It's a good thing to come from a Christian home. It's a wonderful thing. But you're only half-seeing. Or someone else says, oh, well, I'm a good person. Well, first of all, biblically, are you really? I like the story of Robert Murray McShane, who uh, was famed for his holiness, his godliness, his Christ-likeness. One time after he'd been preaching, a woman came up to him when he was standing down the front or at the back or something like that. A woman came up to him and said, you are a very holy person, Robert Murray McShane. You're very godly. You're extremely Christ-like. Robert Murray McShane said this to her. He said, if you could look in my heart, you would spit in my face. Well, is that not true of us all? And anyway, aren't we talking about the holiness of God? Who could be good enough for that? 
half seeing. It's a good thing to want to be good. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad you want to be good. I don't want you to break into uh, my house and steal my possessions. I don't want you to murder and I I don't want you to do wrong. I want you to be good. It's a good thing, but it's only half seeing. It's a good thing to have come from a Christian home, to have Christian education. That's a good thing, but it's only half seeing. So we have them first half sing. Then we have the cross. And this, of course, is the middle portion of the passage. It runs through from about verse um, sort of 30 or so right through to 30, 38 or thereabouts. And here in this middle section of the story, there are really two components. There's the component of Jesus' cross, that is the, the Christ event, that is his death and resurrection. When the Bible says When the Bible talks about preaching the cross, what it means is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So when Jesus talks about the cross, he talks about how he must die and then three days later then rise again. So there's Jesus' cross as that part of the story. But then also Jesus turns to his disciples and to the crowds and said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. There is not only Jesus' cross, there's our cross. And to understand, to really see, we're going to see how those two fit together. Jesus' cross and then, as it were, our cross. What? Jesus' cross. Clearly, this is important. When Peter tries to dissuade Jesus from dying on the cross, Jesus does not say to Peter, well, you know, you haven't, you know, it's not that important a deal. Let me teach you some more things. You understand? No, he says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, it is a satanic tactic to try to establish a religion, a Christianity, if you like, which does not have the cross. It's the heart of the temptation of Jesus. When in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to his father, Father, take this cup from me, not my will, but your will be done. To to the idea that you could establish the kingdom of God without the sacrifice and pain of the cross is the heart of the temptation that Jesus faced. And it is the heart of the tactic of the devil to try to establish a Christianity, a religion, where the cross is marginalized, is minimized, is laid to one side as if it is not that significant. But according to Jesus, to try to have a religion without the cross is the very nature of what it means to have a demonic, satanic, tactic to derail the true faith that he gave to us. Get behind me, Satan. It is that significant that it takes central place. We say, why is that? Well, let me try and explain it to you like this. Say you own a couple of houses, okay? Houses. You're a landlord. And you have one tenant who frankly messes things up quite a bit. You know, they're, they're, they're not very tidy. Uh, they, they've got children and they're always breaking things, you know. And, and they never put the trash out on time and they don't snow plow the driveway and in the summer they don't cut the grass very often. And it's a bit of a mess, if you're honest. They even break things. But they pay their rent each month. Then you have another tenant. Well, they keep the place perfect. Everything's pristine. 
They've got flowers in the windows. The grass is like, you know, 1.1 inches exact as it should be. Uh, they not only uh, snowplow their own driveway, they do the neighbor's. You go inside and there are pictures all on the wall and everything is repainted and there's not, there's not, a, there's not a mark on a wall anywhere. It's just, it's just perfect. And then you begin to notice that a month goes by and they don't pay their rent. And then another month. And then there's a letter in your mailbox the next month and instead of it being the rent that they owe you, it's a letter from their lawyer suing you for your house to take it from you? And that's what so many of us are like with God. Yeah, we live nice lives. We live well-ordered lives. There are flowers in the windows. We're kind and careful. But it's our house. It's our life. And God, in his great holiness, cannot put up with this. But in his great love, he pays the price. It is the very heart of the gospel. Theologians call it substitutionary atonement. He pays the price that you, that I, deserved. And if you don't get that, at best you'll be half-seeing. At best. So many people, so many learned people, so many mature people have made this mistake. They've marginalized the cross. Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, preaching in South Wales when he was a fairly young man but becoming a well-known preacher, always a gifted orator. He's preaching in South Wales in Bridge End. He'd been preaching, no doubt, to a big crowd, as I think he always preached to a big crowd. There he was preaching away. After the sermon, another preacher came up to him, a pastor came up to him and said, I've listened to your messages. I've been listening to your preaching, and there is a critically important thing that you're lacking in your messages. So, said Lloyd-Jones, what is that? The other pastor said, the cross. Lloyd-Jones had been preaching about the new birth, but hadn't been preaching about the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Hadn't been preaching about substitutionary atonement. Hadn't been preaching about the fact that Jesus took the penalty that you deserved. Lloyd-Jones was shocked. He went home. He got a couple of books from a bookstore. He began to study the Bible, read and read. He missed lunch. He missed supper. His wife began to think something was wrong with him, was about to call a physician to find out whether he was still okay came out of his study and said, I have discovered the key of the gospel and the essential heart of the Christian faith, the cross. Do you believe that? No doubt it was the secret of his power as a preacher. The cross! Jesus' cross. But then also our cross. For Jesus then turns to his disciples and to the other crowd that he brings along to and says very bluntly, very plainly, very clearly, very openly, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. 
Now, what does that mean? (laughs) Here's what it doesn't mean. To bear your cross. I've got a cross to bear. It doesn't mean my cross to bear. It doesn't mean that annoying person at work is my cross to bear. Deny yourself. Well, it's the season of Lent. Perhaps a bit of self-denial is a good thing. I'm going to deny myself chocolate for Lent. Doesn't mean that. Here's what it does mean. The house of your life, he's paid the price. It's going to be forgiven, all your debt, on one condition. That it is his house. That he is the landlord, that he is your Lord. You, you, can't, you can't just have his forgiveness and then turn around and say, well, thanks very much. I'm glad that you don't mind. I didn't pay your rent, but I'm going to keep my house. That's not how it works. See, the, the image of the cross is the image of death. It's like Jesus saying, you've got to pick up your electric chair and follow me. He's saying you've got to die. He's, he's saying it's not your house. You say, well, okay, preacher, yeah, sure. But you, you know what I mean. I mean, okay, I give my tithe, but the rest of the money is mine to do with as I want, right? And yeah, I know what you mean. It's Jesus' church, but I come here and I pick this church. There are lots of other churches, and really, it's my church, isn't it? Really, and and you know, I've got and I've got this car, and yeah, okay. So I guess, but really, it's my car, isn't it? It's my house, my car, my life. You know, I was uh, uh, doing some missionary work in Istanbul, in Turkey, one time, and I got picked up from the air uh, the airport by a missionary. And uh, he had a car, and it, 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 I thought it was quite a nice car that he was driving this missionary. And as he was driving me into the center of Istanbul, I turned to my missionary friend uh, who picked me up from the airport. I turned to him and said, you know, this is, a, this is a nice car, you know, just making conversation. He looked at me and said, it's God's car, which I thought was one of the best missionary put-downs ever. <laughs> but also True. It's not your car. It's not your house. It's not your money. It's not your life. If you're sitting there thinking, you know, okay, fine, but, but really it is, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest, let's be practical. Really it is, isn't it? I mean, I can do what I like with my time, with my money, with my life. Really, that's true, isn't it, if we're practical? If you're saying that then I've only got this to say in reply. I'm not sure you're even saved. At best, you're half-seeing. At best! It's his house. It's his life. It's his money. It's his time. It's his car. It's not yours. He made the whole thing, and you're his, 
And he has bought you with his blood. You are his. Jesus' cross. Our cross. You know, A.W. Tozer, one of the great preachers, once said this about the cross. The cross stands before us and demands a response. We either flee from it or we die upon it. If we are so foolhardy as to flee from it, we make of our faith something different from that of our forefathers and we make of Christianity something other than it is. When we depart from it, we depart from the power of the cross. Maybe that's why you don't see. You've never really made Jesus Lord. But if you do, then you see. Then you see. Then you have this personal relationship with God. Look what happens at the end of this passage, chapter 9, verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. But what's about to happen after this is the transfiguration. See how, see how carefully this is put together by Mark, by Jesus, as Mark records it. You've got the half seeing, you've got the cross, and now you've got the fully seeing. They're about to see Jesus transfigured before them. They'll see him. They won't half see anymore. He, he won't be like a, a, like a man like trees walking around. They'll see him for who he is. And when you, when you come by way of the cross, you're no longer half seeing. You're now seeing. Now, now your life means something. Now your life has purpose. Now you understand what, what those Christians talk about when they say joy and love and peace and hope. You're, you've now entered into this world where now you see, you get it. You get what it means that it's his church. You get what it means that it's his money, his life. You're, you're now in this place and you see him. You, you understand it. You, you're a part of it. You have a relationship with, with God, with the God of the whole universe and the God who is holy beyond beyond comparison, and you have a relationship with him, and you, you are just amazed. You, you see it. I want that for you. I want that for you. D.L. Moody, one time when he was... Um, uh, preaching, he being asked, he was preaching in a prison. He got asked to preach in a prison, a prison I imagine, many times. And one time he was asked to preach in this prison. There was no chapel, you see. And so to preach in this prison, he had to stand at the top of the corridor and literally preach down this corridor, unable to see any of the prisoners. He just had to imagine they were in the jail cells as they went down the corridor. And D.L. Moody preached like this. He, he said he found it a, quite a difficult sermon to give, not knowing if anyone was even listening because he couldn't see anyone, but he preached his sermon. And after the sermon, he wanted to go and meet some of the people he'd been preaching to. So he started to wander up and down the corridor in this jail cell. He went to the first jail cell, and there was a group of prisoners playing cards and so talking to each other. And they said, oh, preacher, thanks for the sermon, but you know... Yeah, none of us here did anything wrong. It was the other guy. I said, oh, they're innocent, okay. 
And he went to the next jail cell. There's another group of prisoners who were sitting there chatting. And they said, oh, uh, oh preacher, thanks for your sermon. But, you know, it, it was the lawyer's fault. He should have got us off. We didn't do anything wrong. It went on like this. The next, uh, next jail cell, oh, we didn't do anything. We're, we're innocent too. D.L. Moody said he'd never met so many innocent people before he went to jail. Until he came to the last prison cell of that corridor. And there's one young man on his knees, weeping. And D.L. Moody said to him, I'm so glad to meet you. And the young man said, well, why? I've, I'm such a mess. I've ruined my life. I've messed everything up. I'm a disaster. He said, it's for you that Jesus died. And the young man said, I can't believe it. I can't. D.L. Moody said, call on God and he'll save you. And the young man said, well, I'm going I'm I'm to do that. Okay, I'll do that. And Dylan Moody said, I'm going to pray for you. He prayed for him that evening between the 9 and 10 o'clock that night, came back the next morning, between 9 and 10 o'clock that night, that that young man was calling on God and met God and then saw, he saw, he saw, he sees. And D.L. Moody says from all his journey from New York back to Chicago, he never saw anyone so happy as that young man. I want that for you. One time I was preaching and a student came up to me afterwards and simply said this. She looked at me and said, I'm so glad I came today. I want that for you. Let's pray together. First, would you, like that young man, call on God? Would you declare that Jesus is Lord of your life? It's his life. Lord, I pray this morning you would open our eyes that we might see that we stand forgiven at the cross. In the name of Jesus, amen.